Well, good morning. Morning, morning. Uh, if you get bored with the session, you can always look out and enjoy the view of Cincinnati here. Uh, sort of in my old uh, stomping grounds. Uh, I'm from Ohio originally. Uh, grew up in Cedarville, Ohio. Went to uh, Cedarville College, now Cedarville University. Uh, my dad taught uh, Bible and Greek for 50 years at, at Cedarville. And uh, I was privileged to take my dad for every course that he taught, including uh, New Testament survey and, and Greek. Um, if, for those of you who don't know, my, my father of 89 years passed and went to glory uh, the end of March, and I was privileged to, to be with him when he went to heaven. So I thank the Lord for the opportunity to, to be here with you today and uh, to share this topic, uh, Jesus' view of the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. So uh, before I begin, I'd like to pray, and then I want to introduce uh, John McGee. He's going to just uh, say a couple words uh, about Calvary, and uh, then I'll get started. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these men. Thank you, and ladies who are here today at uh, the IFCA convention. And Lord, we just pray that this would be a, a day that we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be built up in the faith, strengthened in our understanding of the truths of your word. We thank you that the Bible that we read and memorize and meditate on and preach and teach to others, we thank you that your word is truth and we can have confidence and assurance and certainty that this is truly your word to us. This is how you've communicated to us. So we pray today in this session that we would grow in our confidence and understanding of Jesus' view of the Bible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John McGee is our Chief Development Officer at Calvary University. Thank you, Dr. Gramacki. It's a privilege to serve alongside Dr. Gramacki and Ian Bacon and Mike Dodds and others. Dr. Gadadis is at the youth convention, and I know you know that already. Our table is in the middle of the convention hall. I've had a chance to meet with many of you already this week, but stop by the table. We have some things to give you in addition to what you received this morning. We want to be a blessing to you. We want to serve you and serve you well. And so we continue to ask the question of how can we do that, and we're looking for ways to not change who we are, but change how we deliver what we do so that we serve the church better as we move into the next days and uh, era of what's going on in the church here in the West. So thank you for coming. Look forward to what you have to say, Dr. Mackey. I'll turn back over to you. All right. So title of our session today is Jesus' View of the Inspiration and Inerrancy of the Bible. We'll start with the IFCA statement on inspiration. We believe that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible and God-breathed. Very important statement, uh, the very first statement in the IFCA doctrinal statement affirming our belief that the Bible truly is God's written word. And of course, this is based upon three key texts, as stated here. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, Matthew 5 a little later on, but let's just look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, first of all, where it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, that word inspiration, as you know in the Greek text, theopneustos, God breathes, is how it's translated in the NIV text emphasizing the divine origin of the Bible. The Bible is God's word. It's God's word to us. It's how he's communicated. And it has a purpose. It's profitable for doctrine. That is to teach us the truths that we need to believe. For reproof, for correction, as it relates to our lifestyle. For instruction in righteousness, to show us how to live a godly, holy life. That the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible not only tells us what to believe, it shows us how to live and shows us the importance of living a holy life. 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, 
which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, no prophecy of scripture is of any private origin. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So again, where does the scripture come from? It's not man's fanciful ideas. It's not something that man invented, right? Uh, it's not just, it, it's not man's ideas about God. It's God's word to us. No prophecy of scriptures of any private origin. It wasn't invented by man. But it's the Holy Spirit of God who was at work in the prophets and the apostles so that the words that they wrote down were the inspired, inerrant word of God. We can have confidence in that. So some definitions of inerrancy to start. Let's start with ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society. I'm a member of ETS. Um, what is inerrancy? The Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the word of God written and is therefore inerrant in the autographs. So this statement on the inerrancy of the Bible is foundational to, to ETS and those of you who know a little bit of the history of ETS, you know that uh, there's been some controversy because there are people who are ETS members who uh, sign a statement saying that they're in agreement with this, but when we read some of their books, we say, um, that's not a factual view of inerrancy. So they may claim to believe in inerrancy, but their books say something else. The ICBI statement, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts and creation, about the events in world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Scripture is without error or fault in its teaching, right? So what the Bible says about creation is true. We believe in creation, not evolution, because Genesis 1 and 2 teach creation in six days, six literal 24-hour days. That's what we believe because the Bible says it. Paul Feinberg, in the chapter of the meaning of inerrancy in the inerrancy book by Dr. Geisler, said, inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures in the original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. So we talk about inerrancy in relationship to the autographic text, the original writings. Well, we don't possess the original writings. So people say, well, you fundamentalists, uh, you say you believe that the Bible is inerrant, that it contains no errors in the original autographs, but we don't possess the original autographs. We don't have the original writings. So how can you say that? Well, we believe that God has preserved his words in the copies because his word is what? Eternal. Right? So we don't have the original autographs, we admit that, but we have many manuscripts that contain the original words of the autographs. And so that's why we do textual criticism, to try to, di to discern what are the original words in the copies that we have. And as we look at the various translations that we have of the Bible, we recognize that scholars, Old Testament and and uh, New Testament, Hebrew, and Greek scholars are looking at these manuscripts and then as they're translating into English and then various other translations of the world, they're trying to come up with the best words that relate to the original words of the text. The necessity of inerrancy. Why is this doctrine so important? 
Al Mohler says, I do not believe that evangelicalism can survive without the explicit and complete assertion of biblical inerrancy. Without a total commitment to the trustworthiness and truthfulness of the Bible, the church is left without its defining authority, lacking confidence in its ability to hear God's voice. Preachers will lack confidence in the authority and truthfulness of the very word they are commissioned to preach and teach. Individual Christians will be left without either the confidence to trust the Bible or the ability to understand the Bible as something less than totally true. As we'll see, inerrancy is necessary. It's foundational. It's fundamental. Because if you don't believe in inerrancy, that's going to affect your beliefs and other doctrines that are taught in the Bible. Well, here's a logical argument for inerrancy. A deductive syllogism. If you know logic, the Bible is God's word. We looked at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. God's word is truth. Jesus said that. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Therefore, the Bible is truth. Alright? Second deductive syllogism. The Bible is truth. Premise one. Premise tr two. The definition of truth. Truth does not contradict itself. That is one of the laws of non-contradiction in logic. Truth does not contradict itself. Therefore, the Bible does not contradict itself. We have different accounts uh, regarding the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And oftentimes when scholars in the academy do their comparative studies and they're looking at the word specifically in the Greek text, comparing these, they're trying to explain, well, why does this gospel writer have similar words to this one but not this one? Uh, why is a particular event in the life of Jesus included in Matthew but not found in Mark or Luke? So they come up with various ways to interpret using source, form, and redaction criticism to try to explain why we have the different Gospels that we have. We don't have time to go into those different approaches to studying the Gospels, but it's important to recognize that they're looking at the same manuscripts, the same Greek text that we are, but they're coming up with a different explanation for the origin of these texts. The Bible is truth. The nature of truth, truth does not contain errors, therefore the Bible does not contain errors. We believe in an inerrant word, the Bible. Well, there are those who reject this. You know, somebody's People say, well, we fought the battle for the Bible back in the late 70s and 80s. Harold Lenzel's book, The Battle for the Bible. I don't know if you ever read that. Talking about what was going on specifically at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there in Louisville. Uh, when I was growing up in the 70s, uh, that was a bastion of liberalism. That, that's, back then, uh, there were there was professors there who did not believe in inerrancy. Well, times have changed. Why is that? Because of a change of leadership. Stephen Davis wrote a book, The Debate About the Bible. He doesn't believe in inerrancy. He says the Bible is infallible, as I define that term, but not inerrant. He says there are historical and scientific errors in the Bible, but I've found none on matters of faith and practice. That's really what we have in the academy today. Those who say, well, the Bible tells the truth regarding the gospel and salvation, but in the areas of history and science, well, there's historical or scientific errors, especially, as you know, the battle over Genesis, uh, the first 11 chapters. Clark Pennock was an ETS member. Uh, I was at uh, ETS meeting, National <laughs> Convention in Atlanta, uh, when there was a vote to uh, kick him out of ETS because of his writings. You had to have two-thirds, 66%, to kick him out, and they had 63%. So he stayed. 
And I'll never forget when Dr. Norman Geisler walked out of ETS, a founding member. So what was he saying by that statement? Well, ETS is now a mixed bag. Even those people who claim uh, by signing the statement they're an ETS member believe in inerrancy really don't believe in factual inerrancy. That's what we have at ETS today. But Clark Pinnock says the Bible does not attempt to give the impression that it's flawless in historical or scientific ways. God uses writers with weaknesses and still teaches the truth of revelation through them. Bart Ehrman, or as I like to say, Bart Ehrman, E-R-R, uh, has written many books that reject inerrancy, misquoting Jesus. Who changed the Bible and why? Uh, Jesus interrupted, revealing the hidden contradictions in the Bible, lost scriptures, books that did not make it into the New Testament, and forged, writing in the name of God, why the Bible's authors are not who we think they are. I, I don't know if you understand his life story, but uh, never heard of it, but uh, Bart Ehrman went to Moody Bible Institute, and then he went to Wheat. But then he went to Princeton. That sort of says where he was going theologically, right? So he thought he found some errors in the Greek New Testament, and that led him to become basically an apostate. Peter Entz, The Evolution of Adam. Yes, sir. Uh, well, it'd be like with the Jesus Seminar, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, it would include uh, the Gospel of Thomas, some of these other books, uh, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and the things like that. Uh, Peter Enns, uh, The Evolution of Adam, says evolution teach, tells us that human beings are not the end of a special creative act of God, as the Bible says, but are the end, should be product there, of a trial and error adaptation and natural selection. This process began billions of years ago with the simplest of one-cell life forms and developed into the vast array of life on this planet. These humans also happen to share a close common ancestry with primates. The evolution of Adam. That's what we have. Uh, if you ever go to the Creation Museum or the Ark Encounter, I hope you have a chance to do that, uh, you'll, you'll see some of the, uh, the quotes that relate to those who claim to be Christians and yet have accepted evolution, rejected what the Bible has to say about origins. And so we have, it used to be, they were called theistic evolutionists, now they like to be called evolutionary creationists. So basically saying that God used the process of evolution to bring about all the various life forms, including man. Well, this relates to history and archaeology. Uh, archaeologist Israel Finkelstein in his book, The Bible on Earth. But that is not to say that archaeology has proved the biblical narrative to be true in all of its details. Far from it. It's now evident that many events of biblical history did not take place in either the particular era or the manner described. Some of the most famous events in the Bible clearly never happened at all. We call archaeologists who are reinterpreting various finds minimalists. So they are basically discounting the Bible as history. So we have those who discount the Bible as history and as science. They are attacking the doctrine of inerrancy. Just mentioned a couple books for those of you interested in reading more about this. Uh, five views on biblical inerrancy. Uh, Al Mohler, Peter Enns, Michael Byrd, Kevin Van Huser, and John Frank. So each one of them write their view on inerrancy and then critique the other authors in the book. So if you're interested in sort of the modern debate for the Bible, Battle for the Bible, that's a good book to read. And then let me mention a book that's required reading in our PhD program. Uh, Defending Inerrancy, Norman Geisler and William Roach, Affirming the Accuracy of Scripture for a New Generation. That's what we have to do. 
Uh, it's required reading because as I teach the PhD students in our program, uh, I want them to believe in inerrancy, but I want them to be able to defend the doctrine as well. I mentioned the Jesus Seminar. Their book is called The Five Gospels. So what they've done is they've elevated the Gospel of Thomas to have the same credibility as our four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What they did was color code uh, in the book the teachings of Jesus, red, pink, gray, and black. Red, Jesus said this or something like it. Uh, pink, Jesus probably said something like this. Gray, Jesus didn't say this, but his ideas, the ideas stated are close to his own. Black, Jesus never said this. Uh, these words just reflect the later church tradition. So what they did was they had these so-called <coughs> scholars uh, evaluating every teaching and statement of Jesus and they had these different colored beads and they placed them in a bag that went around and that's how they determined how they were going to color code their book, the five Gospels. Uh, they're evaluating the statements and teachings of Jesus to try to say, well, these really Jesus never said that. Uh, that is, Matthew was putting words into Jesus' mouth because he never really said it. That's what we have today in the academy, an attack upon the New Testament, and especially the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, Ryrie in his book, What You Should Know About Inerrancy, says no one denies that there are passages in the Bible that contain problems of one kind or another. We don't deny that. The inerrancy question does not involve interpretive problems or debates concerning the best text type but problems of apparent discrepancies, conflicting numbers, difficulties in parallel accounts, or allegedly unscientific statements do concern the inerrancy of the Bible. Well, here's one. Just came back from leading a tour over in Israel, and I picked this up in one of the shops. Uh, you can come up, take a look at it, and I'll unscrew it and give you one. This is... This bottle of mustard seeds. Okay? Um, so the question about Jesus' statement in Matthew 13, 32, uh, the issue, did Jesus make a mistake uh, when he said the mustard seed is the smallest seed? When you talk to botanists, they say, well, the mustard seed's not the smallest seed. There are other seeds that are smaller. So did Jesus make a mistake when he said that, as recorded in the Gospels? Well, Geisler says this in his uh, text. Jesus was not referring to all the seeds in the world, but only that those that a farmer would sow in his field. That is, this is made clear by a qualifying phrase in the preceding verse, which a man took and sowed in his field. It's a fact that the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds, which the first century Jewish farmer sowed in his field. So there's really no contradiction here between science and the scripture. What Jesus said was literally true in the context in which he said it. And that's all, always the answer to problems, is context, context, context. Make sure you're looking and reading the word in its context. Well, how do we answer these apparent contradictions? Well, first of all, as we look at the scripture, we say not all citations are exact quotations. You know, when students write papers for me and they put quotations marks in their paper, uh, I expect them to follow Turabian style and correctly footnote that and put that resource in their bibliography following Turabian style. And it's expected that students not plagiarize. Okay? Um, the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament, but as you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. So when they quote from the Old Testament, what are they quoting from? And this is where the debate comes in. Uh, oftentimes they're quoting from the Greek Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And other times it's sort of a free paraphrase type of translation, sort of like what we have in our different English translations, right? Right? Uh, 
So it's not a citation with quotation marks, which often gets criticized, saying, well, Jesus really, uh, when he said this, he wasn't quoting the Old Testament exactly. Well, we have to remember that the New Testament written in Greek, the Old Testament written in Hebrew. Uh, second point, not every writer of a Bible book gives all the truth. So we have four canonical Gospels. There's not one Gospel that contains every event in the life of Jesus, every teaching of Jesus, every parable of Jesus. There are, for instance, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, that's one event in the life of Jesus. A miracle is found in all four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can get a harmony of the Gospels, and you can make a comparative study to see how each one of those Gospel writers described the event. So if they were brought into a court of law, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could tell that viewpoint of that miracle of Jesus. But each one of them are telling the truth. But they're not telling what everything that happened in that miracle. So that leads to point three. A partial true report is not a false report. Give you another example. Mark gives a very short version of the temptation of Jesus. One or two verses. Matthew and Luke and their chapter fours of their book give detailed account of the temptation of Jesus. So, a partial true report, Mark, is not a false report. Just because Mark didn't include all the details that Matthew and Luke record doesn't mean that Mark's account is false. Uh, divergent accounts in the Gospels can be harmonized. Well, sometimes if you read uh, what liberal scholars will say, well, you look at the Christmas story in Matthew and Luke, and they're different accounts. They can be harmonized. You can tell that one story of what happened at Christmas, and I, I do that in my Life of Christ class. They're, they're not contradictory, they're complementary, like hand and glove. Well, inerrancy is like the first domino. You knock the first domino down, what happens? The other doctrines go down. If you reject inerrancy, what do we see? A rejection of biblical young earth creations. We've seen that today. A rejection of historical Adam and Eve. A rejection of historical fall of man. Dennis Lamro said, fall of man never happened. I believe in Jesus and I accept evolution. Name of his book. A rejection of the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. A belief in JEDP. Uh, the historicity of the Exodus is rejected. Finkelstein doesn't believe in that, the Bible on earth. Uh, that leads to the, the doctrines, the fundamentals of the faith, the deity of Christ, substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the literal second coming. So, I mean, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 3, that in the last days people will come and say, where is the promise of his coming? It has been over 2,000 years, he's not coming back. All right, so they're going to make fun of fundamentalists because we teach a literal second coming of Christ. Well, let's get into our topic. Jesus recognized the entire Old Testament to be Scripture. Matthew 5, 17, Luke 24. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets, talking about the books of the Old Testament. Now, when Jesus was on this earth, they had copies of the Old Testament, right? The Torah scroll and the different prophets. But he didn't have the New Testament yet. So we're going to be talking about Jesus' view of the inspiration and inerrancy of the Old Testament and then his view of the inspiration and inerrancy of the New Testament. But we have to recognize that when Jesus was on the earth, just his Bible that he used was the Old Testament. He also said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Wouldn't you have liked to have been with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and hear Jesus' exposition of the Old Testament? 
Luke makes this editorial comment on Jesus' statement. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. His exposition, Old Testament exposition. Beginning at Moses, Luke believed in Mosaic authorship of the Torah, the Pentateuch. Later, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room. Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All things must be fulfilled which were written, notice, in the law of Moses, that's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus is referencing the Hebrew Bible, which is sometimes called the Tanakh. Three sections in the Hebrew Bible. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and Kethavim. The Torah, the first five books, the Law. The Prophets, starting with Joshua. And then the Kethavim, starting with Psalms. So, as you know, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, rather than... um, Dividing First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, uh, you just have Kings or Chronicles. So the first book in the Kethavim is Psalms, and the last book is Second Chronicles. Jesus recognized that inspiration extends to the very words and letters of the Bible. Jesus knew the Old Testament. He knew the Hebrew. Uh, the fact that he quotes it from heart after, during his temptation, 40 days in the wilderness of Judea, Matthew 4, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He's tempted by Satan to turn stones into, bre- into bread. And he's starving. He's very hungry. And Jesus said, it is written. Jesus believed in the authority of the Old Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by, notice, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's that's the inspiration of the Bible, right? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is the written word of God. It's God's communication to us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, what, until all is fulfilled. The whole law is fulfilled. So what is that jot? Uh, the smallest Hebrew letter is a yod. Those of you who studied Hebrew, you know it looks like an apostrophe. Right? The smallest letter. And then the tittle is uh, a difference between the Hebrew letter resh and dalet. It looked very similar. Uh, the resh on the left looks like the curve. Uh, one, compare it to the yod. The yod is, is small, and then the resh has the long uh, side there at the on the right. The dalit, that just that little projection here that hangs over would be the tittle. Right? So that's distinguishing the resh and the dalit. Um, So Jesus is talking about the accuracy and the fulfillment of the Word of God down to the very letters themselves. You know, it's amazing. uh, Calvary University was gifted a Torah scroll uh, by God's Ancient Library. And that Torah scroll is really special. I had the students uh, look at it, and we can compare it with our modern Hebrew Bibles. And what's amazing is that uh, when you compare that to the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, and some of the um, scrolls from the Torah and the Dead Sea Scrolls, you see the accuracy uh, over uh, hundreds of years. Uh, the scribes accurately copied the scriptures. Uh, we can have assurance uh, that the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts that we possess contain all the words and all the original letters of those original words, uh, we can have confidence that the Word of God has been preserved. Now, Jesus believed that Moses wrote the Torah and that Moses gave prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled by Jesus. 
Jesus in the controversy with the Jews there in John 5 said, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. Uh, there is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, Jesus said, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Moses wrote about the coming Messiah. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We don't have time to look at all the Messianic prophecies starting with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we can go through that. I actually wrote uh, a paper on that. Uh, you can find all my papers in academia.edu. Uh, it's called the Messiah and the Torah. Right? I look at the Messianic prophecies and I look at the typology in the Torah that's fulfilled by Jesus. It's all fulfilled by him. You know, Jesus used the Old Testament to argue for his deity in John chapter 10. Uh, Jesus said this, uh, to the Jews, I and my Father are one. Now, he did not say that we are the same person. We believe in the Trinity. One God in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when he said... I and the Father are one. He's talking about his essence and being, right? The Jews took up stones to stone him. The Jews recognized that Jesus was claiming to be God. And Jesus said, many good works I've shown you from my Father, the miracles that he performed. For which one of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we don't stone you, but for what? Blasphemy. Because you, being a man, Make yourself God. So the Jews in Jesus' day understood that when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, that Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus was claiming to be God. As you go on and read in the text, Jesus said, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and... The scriptures cannot be broken. Key text. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Sometimes people say, the liberal scholars say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Well, look at that verse. Jesus did claim to be the Son of God in that verse. Yes, he did. Well, what's the argument that he's making? The argument is based upon the scripture that cannot be broken. The, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Psalm 82. If God called humans gods, and the Hebrew word in Psalm 82 is Elohim, the same word used for God in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Hebrew word Elohim. If God called humans gods in Psalm 82, then certainly, Jesus said, it's not wrong for Jesus to refer to himself as the Son of God, since God the Father set Jesus apart and sent him into the world. This is Jesus' argument. He's arguing for his deity from a psalm, Psalm 82. The scriptures cannot be broken. They're unbreakable. They are truth. Well, Jesus affirmed the historicity of Genesis. How am I doing on time? 22 minutes. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, Jesus believed in a historical Adam and Eve. You talk about a debate going on in the academy today regarding the historical Adam. Uh, there's a book in the Zondervan series that, that talk about the four views on the historical Adam. Uh, those of you familiar with John Walton, ETS member, uh, you know, he, he has a different view. Uh, he signs a statement uh, agreeing with ETS, and yet he doesn't uh, hold to that literal historical Adam like we do. Uh, Matthew 19. God designed marriage to be a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. Uh, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 because that's God's definition of marriage given at the beginning 
when God created Adam and Eve. Notice he said to the Pharisees, they're discussing grounds for divorce, and Jesus said, have you not read? I mean, the Pharisees were the experts, right, in the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Did Jesus believe in the direct creation of Adam and Eve? Yes, he did. Did Jesus believe in a literal, historical Adam and Eve? Yes, he did. And for this reason, Jesus said, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, if there are no longer two but one flesh, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees are saying, well, do you believe with Hillel that there, uh, someone can divorce for, for any reason? And Jesus says, well, you didn't read Genesis 2.24. Marriage is to be permanent. One man for one woman for life. Did Jesus believe in a literal Abel who murdered his brother Cain? Yes, he did. Luke chapter 11. Notice that reference in that text. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, Jesus said the blood of all the prophets that have been shed is going to be required of this generation. When you look at the blood of Abel, that's found in Genesis chapter 4. When you look at the blood of Zechariah, that's 2 Chronicles. So basically, Jesus is saying all the blood shed of the righteous prophets from Abel all the way to Zechariah, from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, from the first book in the Hebrew Bible to the last book, he says all that blood is going to be required of this generation. Judgment did come to that generation, right? A.D. 70. They rejected Jesus as Messiah, and what happened? Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. Did Jesus believe in a literal Noah, a literal ark, a literal global flood? Yes, he did. And most say, well, the flood described in, in Genesis was a local flood, a flood in the Mesopotamian region. Um, archaeologists who did work at Ur said that that was a localized flood. As they read Genesis, they're saying that this is just a local flood, not a global flood. If it was a local flood, why did Noah have to build a boat? Why didn't God say to Noah, take your family and the animals and, and go to a different location? Why did he have to build a boat? Because it was a global flood that destroyed all the ungodly, the world of the ungodly. Read 2 Peter chapter 3. And Peter arguing for a literal global flood there. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What we're seeing in our society today, imagine if you uh, were Noah and you had the seven members of your family who were believers in the true creator God. But everything that we're seeing today, multiply that times ten, times a hundred. We're going to continue to see moral corruption and a rejection of the truth of God's word. And it's going to take courage for us in these last days to stand for the truths of the inerrant Bible and to continue to preach and teach God's word. It's essential that we do that. Because the attacks are coming, and we see it. We see the attacks coming in our society. Jesus said in the days before the flood, they're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Luke 17, Jesus says that was in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus believed in a little destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You talk about a global flood that destroyed the world. You talk about a literal destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone. Uh, Jesus believed that God delivered Lot but judged his wife. Again, Luke chapter 17, Jesus said likewise. So the days of Noah, the days of Lot. He says, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. It seems like they're just 
going about their daily life, and yet moral corruption in their society and their cities. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Remember Lot's wife. Well, what happened to her? She turned back. She looked back and became a pillar of salt. Read about that in, in Genesis chapter 19. But Jesus is stating here the historicity of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities that were corrupted by their acceptance of homosexuality. And what do we see in our society today? We see that same acceptance. Uh, did Jesus believe in a little Jonah? He's talking to the Pharisees. They say, we want to see a sign. You know, Jesus kept showing them signs and miracles. Uh, basically, all up to the time of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. After that, Jesus uh, was, he did some signs and miracles, but they were mainly for the disciples. Because Jesus said to the uh, Pharisees here, uh, there's only going to be one more sign. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is that? The resurrection. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, that's the sign. He believed in a literal Jonah, not a whale of a tail. <laughs> uh, he believed that it was true, that Jonah was a true prophet. Uh, Jesus used the words of the Torah to refute the Sadducees and to prove the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were sad, you see, uh, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. And Jesus said to them, you are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures. I mean, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They did believe in the inspiration of the Torah. So what does Jesus do? He's going to argue from the Torah and show that they don't know the Scriptures that teach a resurrection, uh, and he's going to prove that to them. He says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, notice what Jesus said, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I mean, God speaks through his written word, the Torah. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead but of the living. Notice, he did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they died. He said, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because they're still in existence. Yes, they died, but they didn't cease to exist. That was the belief of the Sadducees. Well, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. I'm going to move on because I'm running a little bit out of time here. Basically saying that this scripture from Isaiah 61, he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Did Jesus claim to be the Son of God? We saw that verse in John 10. Did Jesus claim to be Messiah? Yes, he did. From Here in Luke chapter 4 as he's quoting Isaiah 61. Let's go to Jesus' view of the inspiration and inerrancy of the New Testament. Now we come to a different argument. As I said... For the Old Testament, we've looked at those texts where Jesus is referencing the Hebrew Bible. So Jesus guaranteed the inspiration of the New Testament as he predicted the Holy Spirit would enable the apostles to write the New Testament. In the upper room, John 14, 26, Jesus predicts the coming of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete. He says, whom the Father will send in my name. You talk about Trinitarian verses, here you got one. John 14, 26, you got the Father, you got the Holy Spirit, and you have Jesus speaking. He says, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, notice, all things that I said to you. The New Testament was written by the apostles and their associates. Let's talk about the four Gospels. Matthew and John were apostles. They were eyewitnesses. Now those who argue for source, form, and redaction criticism, some like to say that those Gospels were not written by them, but by later redactors. 
Well, why do we have to have redactors when Matthew and John were apostles and were with Jesus and witnessed the miracles and heard his teachings and were with him for those three and a half years? Why do we have to have redactors? We don't. The Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance. So some people say, well, New Testament's like, uh, you know, playing that game where you whisper in somebody's ear a statement and that person whispers to the next person. By the time it gets to the tenth person, everybody laughs because it's not exactly what the first person said. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance the things that he taught them. See, our minds are like computers, right? You know, what we, what we read and study and, and we bring our, into our minds the Word of God, uh, God can use that in our preaching and teaching. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, but he would bring to their remembrance all things that I said to you. And that's what happened when they wrote their accounts of the life, miracles, teaching, death and resurrection. They wrote what the Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance. They didn't forget. The Spirit enabled them to remember. Jesus also said, I can tell, I have many things to say to you now, but you can't bear them now. However, when he, notice, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth inspired the word of truth. Uh, he will guide you into all truth. This is a promise Jesus making to the apostles in the upper room that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. Because he's the spirit of truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. At Calvary University, we hold to a futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation. There are those who hold to predator interpretation of the book, but we hold to a futurist interpretation. That means Revelation... Uh, 1 through 3, referring to the first century, but chapters 4 to 22 refer to future events, have yet to happen. That's a futurist interpretation based upon the key verse, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus told John to write the things that he had seen, the things that are, and the things which will take place after this, metatalta, stated in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. So God gave that revelation to John. Read about that in Revelation chapter 1. He showed him things to come. Jesus told the apostles they were to be what? His witnesses. Again, we come back. Eyewitness account. It's not truth that's changed over time as those who attack inerrancy doctrine. Again, John 15, when the whole Helper comes, Jesus said, Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will what? Testify of me, and you will bear witness. And they bear witness in the New Testament scriptures. Now, Paul, an apostle, he saw the risen Christ. And over and over again, he makes that point in his epistles. 1 Timothy 5.18, he says that Luke's gospel is scripture. Now, Luke was not an apostle, right? Matthew and John were apostles. Luke was not an apostle, but when you read his prologue, he researched his gospel. He interviewed eyewitnesses. But remember, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was real in Luke's life so that when he wrote his account of the life of Christ, uh, it's a true account even though he's not an apostle. But Paul calls his statement, uh, quoted in Luke 10, 7, it's actually a statement of Jesus. Uh, should get an amen here for this statement. Uh, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the statement by Jesus, the labor is worthy of its wages. Hear an amen? Um, why? Because in the context, he's arguing that the elders especially those who preach and teach God's word, should be honored. Double honor for those who are preaching and teaching God's word. And honor is more than just respect, by the way. Um, 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Peter refers to the Old Testament and New Testament in his writings. Beloved, he says, I write to you a second epistle. You know, liberal scholars reject the 
Petrine authorship of Second Peter. I mean, that's that's classic liberal teaching. But Peter says, I wrote a second epistle, uh, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Remembrance is a key word. Be mindful. Be mindful of the words spoken before by the holy prophets. That's the Old Testament. And the commandment of us. <coughs> the apostles of the Lord and Savior. That's the New Testament. He's referencing the Old Testament and the New Testament. Be mindful of that. And 2 Peter 3, Peter viewed Paul's epistles as Scripture. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, has written in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. My favorite verse when I teach this text, uh, Peter obviously read Paul's epistles and he sort of scratched his head. What does Paul mean? <laughs> uh, if you ever struggle with the, uh, the teaching of Paul and his epistles, Peter did too. Uh, he says, untaught and unstable people, the apostates that Peter describes in 2 Peter 2, he says they twist these scriptures to their own destruction as they do, notice, the rest of the scriptures. Basically, he's saying Paul's epistles are scripture. Well, to finish, uh, Gary Habermas, who's written some excellent apologetic books on the resurrection of Jesus, says, Jesus accepted the reliability, authority, and inspiration of the Old Testament. Tried to show you that this morning. He affirmed the veracity of the very words of the text, and even the letters themselves, how confident we can be. He taught that Scripture can keep us from doctrinal error. We saw that in Jesus' rebuke of the Sadducees. In short, he approved the Old Testament. Further, he provided a basis for the inspiration of the New Testament. We saw that in the Upper Room Discourse. He made a twofold promise to the disciples that he had chosen them as his personal witnesses, and later they would be inspired by the Holy Spirit and would lead them into all truth. Jesus' followers claim the promise of inspiration for themselves. We saw that with Peter's statement. The case for the inspiration of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, does not stop after an examination of Jesus' teachings on this subject. That's been our focus this morning. The chief foundation that establishes Jesus' teachings is his resurrection should be from the dead. This event provides God's confirmation of Jesus' teachings since God would not raise from the dead a heretic or a false teacher. Jesus is alive. That proves that God the Father accepted his life and his death, and that's why he raised him from the dead. The fundamentals of the faith start with this very first statement, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. These doctrines are under attack even today. We are again having a battle for the Bible in the 21st century. The deed of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead, and his literal second coming, all of these doctrines are tied to our belief in that inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. If that first domino goes down, there's going to be a rejection of these other doctrines. We finish with this prayer of Jesus in John 17. Notice what Jesus said, I've given to them the words that you've given me. Jesus came, sent by the Father, and Jesus said to the apostles that they have received them. He's praying to the Father. And have known surely that I came forth from you, Jesus said to his Father. They have believed that you sent me. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This book is a precious book. Amen. And we have the privilege of holding in our hand a book that people have died for 
has been translated into our language that we can now preach and teach to others. Uh, Jesus said uh, in Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that we have to build our life upon the rock. And that involves not only believing His truth, but putting it into practice. Thank you. Thank you.